This morning we're going to be looking at a unique verse. It's really one of the most difficult verses we could look at in Scripture. Uh, we're coming up on it in the book of Joshua. We're in a series through this book called Receiving the Promises. And we've seen what this book is really all about, is, is the people of God receiving the promised land that God promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. This book of Joshua is about them going into that land and conquering the peoples of that land and, and receiving the land that God promised to them. Uh, but this morning we're going to be entering into uh, Joshua 6, which is the first of several chapters which explain the actual conquest of the land, uh, the, the actual going in and conquering. For the first five chapters we've seen Israel really being prepared for this in a multitude of ways, but now we see uh, this begin to happen. Now, the story that's next in, in terms of passage after passage is the story of Jericho in Joshua 6. But this morning, before looking at that story, which will start next week, we're going to take a week just to take a long and serious look at the reality of the conquest. Just... What happened when Israel went into cities like Jericho? And so if you would, look at Joshua 6.21 with me. Joshua 6.21 is really going to be just our, uh, our base verse today. We'll be looking at a number of different passages in the Bible. But Joshua 6.21 bluntly states the reality that we need to look at this morning. I said next week we will begin again going through the narrative of Joshua, but I feel like before we can really do that, we need to look at this head on together. So Joshua 6.21 says this, Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. Then they, Israel, devoted all in the city of Jericho to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, and they did it with the edge of the sword. Church, this happened, and this happened because God commanded this to happen. Israelites took their swords in their hands, they went into the city, they killed everything that breathed, and they claimed the land as their own what we read in Joshua 6.21, and what we read happens in the other cities in the book of Joshua as well. It's a well-known atheist named Richard Dawkins. Many of you probably have heard of him. He, he represents, I think, the consensus opinion of our 21st century culture on what we just read. He says this, The Bible story of Joshua's destruction of Jericho and the invasion of the promised land in general is morally indistinguishable from Hitler's invasion of Poland or Saddam Hussein's massacre of the Kurds and the Marsh Arabs. It's morally indistinguishable from these other acts of genocide. The Bible may be an arresting and poetic work of fiction, but it's not the sort of book you should give to your children to form their morals. This is what our culture generally thinks of Verses like Joshua 6.21, this, this is genocide. This, this is exactly what we decry in the world today. How, how could you possibly believe the Bible if this is in it? Seems like it's grossly immoral. So when unbelievers hear that this is in the Bible, that it, it gives them, in their minds, a reason to just disregard the whole thing. Some of you know 
friends and family members and neighbors who, who would give you that very argument. If you're talking about Christianity, they would, they would say, don't you know what's in the Bible? Don't you know that God did this? Don't you know that Israelites did this? Now, now many people, that, that's what they use to just say, I'm, I'm not going to be a Christian, I'm not going to follow the Bible. But, but there are some um, people who call themselves Christians who, who want to claim Christ, who also see this as, as extremely problematic, and so their solution is just, let's just renounce the Old Testament. The Old, the Old Testament is full of things like this that are not right, that are not good, and so let's just say that that's a different God in a different time, and we are New Testament people. We, we, we are all about love and sharing the gospel and serving each other and the God of love, but, but we're, the Old Testament is, is not for us. There's a problem with both of these responses. First, for people like Richard Dawkins and those who want to say, how, how could you believe the Bible? It's, it's, this, this is so immoral. Or for Christians who, who, who say, those who call themselves Christians who say, let's just have the New Testament only. The problem is that the very morality that they're using to condemn it is from the Bible, from the Old Testament, from the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is where we get this in the first place. God said, you shall not murder. You shall not steal. This is the foundation of this entire moral system that we live in today is that God spoke these truths. He spoke these commands. And so our sense of morality of the immorality of this, when, when we hear this verse and we, and we have this reaction, this gut reaction of that seems wrong, it's not because we are enlightened 21st century people. It's because God himself has said that it's wrong to steal. God himself has said that it's wrong to kill. Yet we read this story and we read Joshua 6.21 and it seems to us like God is commanding Israel to kill these people and to steal their land. So, so this isn't like 21st century ethics versus the Bible. This, this is biblical ethics versus the Bible. This is, this is something that we know God has said, this is wrong, and yet it seems to be that he's commanding them to do these things which we, he has just said are wrong. And so this isn't just an apologetics issue. This isn't just something that we need to defend unbelievers. This is a theological issue for us. How do we make sense of this when God says murder is wrong, God says stealing is wrong, but then he commands his people to go into the land, to take it, to, to conquer the people, and to devote them to destruction? And, and if that's the issue, then, then even more, it's a personal issue for each one of us. Like it, it, it would be so uh, wrong for us just to gloss over this and not think about it when you realize what's at stake. Do, do we believe that the God of the Bible commanded this, and do we understand it, and are we going to submit to him, are we going to worship him, are we going to love him, are we going to proclaim his glory to the world, or are we going to read Joshua 6.21 and, 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 and turn away because it seems immoral? We, we, we need to face this head on. It's not an easy task, and I can promise you right now that I will not answer every question I ask in this sermon. But to navigate our way through this issue today, I want to ask three questions. Just kind of the outline of the message for today. First, why did God command this? Two, how could God command this? And three, how do we apply this? Why did God command this? So, so what were the reasons for the conquest? What were the reasons for devoting these people to destruction in this way? 
to how could God command this? How is this right? How is this good? How is this righteous? And three, how do we apply this? Because all of Scripture is given to us for our encouragement and for our training and for us to live it out and to do the work. So how do we apply this today? I'm going to pray one more time in light of just the task that's before us for God to help us, help me as I preach, help all of us as we hear his word. Father, we come and, Lord, we need you to illuminate not only our, our understanding, but, but also open up our hearts and keep them soft to you during this time. Father, we pray that your spirit would help us to hear and submit to you through your word. We pray that this time hearing your word would result in greater faith, deeper worship, and a more zealous proclaiming of your glory in the world. Hallowed be your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, first question, why did God command the conquest? Why did God command the people of Israel to go into the land and to devote everything that breathes to destruction? The Bible really gives us two answers to this question of why. And the first one is, in, in light of the purpose of Israel, the, the reason he commanded this was to establish the witness of Israel in the world. To establish the witness of Israel in the world. Think about, again with me, we've thought about this a lot during the series, what is Israel? Why did God make a people Israel? What is his purpose for Israel? In Genesis 12, we, we read that God came to a man named Abram, and he called him, and he said, through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. All the families of the earth will be blessed in you, in your people, in your sons and your daughters. God, you see, the world is broken by sin, and the world is fallen, and the world deserves judgment, but God in his grace makes a plan to redeem humanity, to redeem the world, to, to, to save people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. He's going to do it through Israel. That's God's purpose for Israel. You've got to remember that at the very front end of this, that, that this is what God is doing through Israel. It's a, it's a redemptive plan. And part of that plan in the Old Testament is for Israel to become a, a nation in a place through whom the Messiah would come, Jesus. And so in the book of Joshua, we are in this stage of Israel's history. They are going to go into this land, and from that land, they are to be a people set apart as a light to the nations. That, that, that was Israel's role in the Old Testament, was to be a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles, a, a place that was set apart for the glory of God. And, and for this to happen, if they were going to be this light, then they needed to be a people that themselves were holy, a people that themselves were set apart for the worship of God. And, and so one of the reasons that God commands the conquest is because the land cannot have the abominable practices and idolatry that existed in the land through these people. So turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 20. Deuteronomy chapter 20. We flip around in our Bibles a lot, but I just encourage you to get your Bible out and, and see it for yourself this morning, to turn to these passages as we go. 
That way you can see with your own eyes what God has said. Deuteronomy chapter 20 shows us this purpose in the conquest. Deuteronomy 20, starting in verse 16. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. But you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. Why? That they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. Why must you destroy all the inhabitants of the land? Why must you not save any of them alive so that they would not teach you to do what they do? All these abominable practices, these idolatrous things, these sinful things against the Lord so that you don't do those things because you are supposed to be different. You're supposed to be set apart, a people for God's own possession, a holy people. And you know what happens in the story of Joshua as you go into Judges and so on? We find that Israel did not do what they were called to do. They did not completely devote to destruction the people of the land. You know what happened to Israel? They fell into those practices. They fell into idolatry. Things like child sacrifice. Things like divination. Sexual immorality. These are the things that Israel fell into because they did not drive out the people of the land. But this was God's purpose for them, was just to preserve them as a holy nation. This was not God's purpose for all the nations in the world. God did not command Israel to go to every nation and do this. Only those that were in the land that he was giving them so that they could be the holy people he called them to be. That's one reason why God commanded this, to establish the witness of Israel in the land. Now you might ask, why not just expel them from the land then? Why not, why not just, just conquer them and then have them go somewhere else? And this leads to the second reason. It's not just to establish their witness, it's to execute the judgment of God. To execute the judgment of God. In Genesis 15, God is speaking to Abram. He is making his covenant with him, guaranteeing to him, promising to him that his descendants will come and that they will be in this land. But he tells them that they will have a season where they are enslaved in a foreign land. And one of the reasons is so that the sins of the people in the land would come to completion. And, and here's what he says in Genesis 15, verse 16 says, they, your people, shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The Amorites represent the people of the promised land. And what God is teaching there, what God is telling Abram there, on the one hand is that it's not time to judge these people. These people are sinful, they are rebelling against me, and God is withholding judgment from them. You recognize that, that God could have judged them then and there, but he's withholding judgment from them, he's giving them time, he is a patient God who is giving them time to repent, giving them time to turn to him, but he also says that a day is coming when my patience will run out, and when in my righteousness and in my justice their iniquity will reach a level at which I enter in and I judge them. And that will be when your people return to the land to execute the judgment of God. 
and it's a righteous judgment on their sin. God says in Deuteronomy that the sins of the people in the land had reached a point where, where the land was vomiting them out, which, which, which is a way of saying that, that they had reached a point of sin that, that, that they were not even able to sustain themselves as a culture. They're, they're sacrificing their own children. The things going on in the promised land. And so this is to execute the judgment of God. Now turn to Deuteronomy chapter 9. Deuteronomy 9, this is so important for us to see this morning. It puts the whole thing in a, in a perspective for us as far as this task of Israel to execute the judgment of God. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. Moses is speaking. This is, this is still to the same generation. Moses has not died yet. He is speaking to these Israelites who are going to enter the land. And he says, do not say in your heart, verse 4, do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it's because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess this land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. That he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And so, again, it's not because Israel was better than these nations. God goes on to remind them all about the golden calf to remind them all about their idolatry, to remind them how they do not deserve any better than these nations are getting. But he says, I'm doing this because I am judging these people for their sin, for their wickedness. That is why this is happening. So why Joshua 6.21? Why do we have that in our Bible? Why did God do this? Why did he command this? It was to establish the witness of Israel, and it was to execute the judgment of God. These are the reasons that the Bible gives us for this. Now this leads us to a deeper question as we think about this verse, and that is, is this righteous? I mean, is this, is this good? Is this right? How could God command this? I, I, I hear your reasons, but is that righteous of God? How could God command this? Well, as we think about the judgment of God, we can give a general answer to this question, which I think most of us here already understand implicitly from the teaching of the whole Bible, and that's that God's judgment of sinners, generally speaking, is righteous. It is righteous for God to judge sinners. It is unrighteous for God to not judge sinners, just as any judge we would want any human judge to pronounce a just judgment against sinners. It is righteous of God to judge sinners, and these people were sinners. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. That, that, that is what God says in his word about our sin and what it deserves, is that our sin deserves death. And then Romans 2.12 is an important verse to understand the, the judgment of God in, on sin. Romans 2.12 tells us this, All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. I read that because it's important to see that God's judgment is precise. God's judgment is fitting. God's judgment is exactly what sinners deserve. Those who have the law are judged by the law. Those who don't are judged without the law. And the point of that is that God judges sinners exactly, righteously, according to what they deserve. He does not give any sinner more than what they deserve or less than what they deserve. He meets out perfect 
judgment. This is what God says generally about judgment in Scripture. And so when we see that one of the purposes of this conquest, of of going in and, and doing this, is to execute the judgment of God, we say, well, how is that righteous? Because God is a righteous judge, and sin deserves death. But this still leaves us in Joshua with difficult questions. That's a general answer that stands over the text, but it leaves us with difficult questions. Here's some questions that we have as we hear this. Again, isn't it stealing for Israel to just take this land? And they lived there. Isn't it stealing for them to just take it from them? Isn't it murder for Israelites to go in and kill these people? Isn't it genocide for Israel to actually destroy whole people groups? I mean, isn't that what we call genocide today? Isn't it unjust for them to even include women and children in this judgment? And these are serious questions. These are hard questions. Well, there, there are some important responses that we need to make to these types of questions. First, uh, isn't it stealing for Israel to take the land? The answer is that it would be stealing if Israel simply decided to take the land themselves. If Israelites just got together and said, that land looks great, let's go take it. That's stealing. That's not what happened, though. God continually says, the land I am giving you. He speaks of the land as his gift. And God declares in his word that the whole earth is his. All the world belongs to him, and this is God's gift to his people, is this land. And he only gives it to them upon judging those who are in the land. He only gives it to them at the moment where the people that are already there are going to be judged for their sin. And so it's it's not the same as a group just coming in and taking the land because they want it. It's not like what the forefathers of our country did when they came to America and the land was already here with Native Americans and they just took it. That's not, that's not what happened. God was giving it to them and it was only given to them upon judging those who were in the land. Well, again, what, what about murder? I mean, is, is, isn't it murder for Israel to go in and, and kill these people? And the answer is that, again, it would be murder if the Israelites just said, let's just go do this. But, but that's not what happened. And here, I want you to think with me about something that we actually know today. Romans 13 speaks of it. We, we know in our society is, is that, that is that God has authorized human governments with the sword. Romans 13 talks about this. We, we, we understand capital punishment. We understand what's going on when someone has, has done something evil and the punishment for their crime is death. We don't call that murder, right? We call that justice. That's exactly what is happening in this. Israel was not a, a spiritual body in the same way that the churches. Israel was a political state. Israel was a nation, and God, as the judge of the world, they were a theocracy, and God, as the judge of the world, is giving them his authority to exercise this punishment. Israel was authorized by God to carry out this judgment through divine revelation. I'm not saying that's easy for us to, to accept, but that's that's the answer of why it's different than murder, because this is, this is God's authorization of a just judgment, and he's using human instruments to carry it out just like he does through capital punishment today. Now, third, isn't this genocide? I mean, just think about, you've got this one people group who's going in, and they're killing all these other people groups. Isn't that genocide? And again, 
it would be genocide if this was based on one's ethnicity. But it's not. The book of Joshua clearly shows us that this is not based on anyone's ethnicity. And how do we know that? Because we have the story of Rahab. We have the story of Achan. Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute who believed in God and was saved on the day of judgment. Achan was an Israelite who disobeyed God and received the judgment of God. Rahab became, as it were, an Israelite, and Achan became, as it were, a Canaanite. This was not based on anyone's ethnicity. This was not, you are a Canaanite, you must be destroyed. This is, you are not submitting to God, you are not repenting, you are not turning to Him. And, and, and the same exact rules applied to Rahab and to Achan, a Canaanite and an Israelite. And the book of Joshua clearly shows us this in this very first instance of conquest, that it's not about ethnicity, this is about one's response to God. And then the fourth question, isn't this unjust to include women and children in this judgment? This, this might be the hardest question for us to answer. I want to say on this that while God does not, in his word, reveal everything we want to know about specifically children who die young, he does, he does not, there's not a verse we can turn to and say, this is what happens. We, we can know this about God, that he is righteous and merciful. We can know that we are all born in sin. And we can trust that he will do what is right. When it comes to this story specifically, and the, and the story of the conquest specifically, again, while we might not be able to understand exactly why women and children specifically were included, again, the stories of Rahab and Achan do show us something. Remember, Rahab was not the only one saved. Rahab's entire family was saved because of her faith. And Achan, who sinned, was not the only one judged. Achan's entire family was judged with him. And this shows us that God was operating toward the people in this time by the principle of, of corporate solidarity. That, that, that is, by, by, by the head of a home, by, by family units. And, and so, if I'm a Canaanite, and I'm hearing of Israel coming to the land, I understand what their God has done. I understand why they're coming. I must decide, not only for my own sake, but for my family's sake. Am I going to submit or am I going to resist? It's hard for us to understand, but we do see that the, the responsibility was being placed on the, the heads of these households for these children, for these women. Rahab is an example of someone who believed God and her whole family was saved. Well, I've studied a lot this week and thought a lot, discussed this passage with a number of you, um, prayed a lot through this, and I still, church, I'll be honest, I still wish that I could find a better article, a better commentary, a, a better uh, answer to some of these questions. Like, like I, in my heart, I still feel this desire for more, for, for something that satisfies this uncomfortability that I feel when I read Joshua 6.21. But I believe that there's a point where we do reach the limits of our explanation. And this is where 
how we approach this needs to needs to change. We're not just looking for answers, but we are dealing with the God of conquest. First, I want to say that when, when we reach this point where we want more answers and there seem to be no more for us to find, we need to recognize our place. Romans 9.20 says, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me this way? And as, as we face this passage, as we face these questions, we need to recognize God is God and we are not. God is the creator and we are his creatures. We live today, our hearts beat today because he, he made us. He is over all. We, we are contingent. He is not contingent. We we are pottery, and he is the molder. And we, we have no place, we have no place to, to put God under us and judge him. We cannot do that. That is reversing our role with God. We need to recognize our place and in humility say, you are God and I am not. And though I don't understand all this, I, we must recognize that distinction as we deal with these questions. It is not our place to put God under our judgment. Second, we need to trust God's character. Psalm 145, 17 states it as well as any place in the Bible, the Lord is righteous in all his ways. The Lord is righteous in all his ways. That is a statement that encompasses every single act of God from beginning of history to the end of history. The Lord is righteous in all his ways. His character is righteous and every single thing he does is righteous. This is what God tells us about himself. And so as we come to passages like Joshua 6.21 and it feels to us like something unrighteous is happening, the question is not, let's examine this and see if God is righteous. We, we begin with the presupposition that God is righteous in all his ways. And we submit to that truth and we trust his character. We trust what he has said about himself. Listen, that is not easy to do. It's not easy to look at, look at something that seems unrighteous but to say, but God says he's righteous, and so I'm going to trust that he's righteous. That's, that's not easy to do. And I think this leads us then to the third thing we need to do is that we need to remember the cross. We really always need to think about the conquest in light of the cross. Listen, there, there, are, there are people out there in the world that declare holy war today. They declare God is righteous, submit or die. But you know what we have in the scripture is a God who not only executes his righteous judgment, but a God who comes and in our place takes that judgment on himself. And he does it in order to demonstrate both his righteousness and his mercy. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but that, that God has given his Son to be received as a gift. He says he was a propitiation, a, a wrath-satisfying sacrifice, a judgment-bearing sacrifice 
so that sinners can be righteously forgiven. Again, so if we're thinking about righteousness, and if our complaint is, how is this righteous? Listen, we don't want righteousness from God. We want mercy from God. If we want righteousness from God, then all of us should be judged in the exact same way. But God gives mercy through Christ, and he does it without compromising his justice. It would be wrong for a judge to say to a murderer, I forgive you. It's forgiveness day. Go free. That would be wrong. That would be unjust. That's not what God does when he forgives us. God forgives us at the cost of the death of his son for us who bore the judgment. And, as we, and he did that at the same time while, while justifying sinners like you and me in his mercy, making a way for people like Rahab to be saved, people like you and me to be saved, the lost in the world to be saved, the nations to be saved. He did this through righteously punishing his son in our place. And so when we think about God saying the Lord is righteous in all his works, when we think about Joshua 6.21, we say, I don't, I don't get it, I don't see how this can be righteous, then we look to the cross and we remember the character of God revealed in the gospel. This is where it shines through most clearly. God, you are righteous, and you are merciful, and you are holy, and I see it all at the cross. And so even though I understand Joshua 6.21, I understand Romans 3.23, and I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to trust that you truly are righteous in all your ways. This is ultimately the answer that we need to give to ourselves and to others is is not trying to skirt away around this issue, not trying to avoid it, not trying to make excuses for it, but to say, listen, I don't fully understand it, but I do believe God is righteous and God is good and God is merciful and God is holy, and I believe that because Jesus died for my sins. And we put our trust in him. Well, ultimately, Scripture is not just meant for us to talk about meant for us to do it, right? It's meant for us to apply to our lives. And this leaves one hard question for us, is, is how do we apply this? What in the world does the conquest teach us today as believers? Before we come up, we were singing a song that said, we, we are the body of Christ, and we, we go where your light's not shining, and we take living water to the thirsty, and we go to the fallen. And, and yet here we read that, that God is commanding a people to kill every single thing that breathes, how do we apply this? Well, I want to say first how we don't apply this. How we don't apply this, and we, we do not apply this by seeking a modern-day conquest. We don't apply this by, by taking up arms against all the ungodly in the world. And here's, here's why we don't do that, church. We don't do that because we don't have the authority to do that because God has not given us this instruction the way he gave it to Joshua in Israel. This is, this is very basically why we don't because God has not told us to. He has not authorized us to do this. God has authorized human governments with the sword. And it is not wrong for them to use that sword in a just way. But God has not authorized the church with the sword. God has authorized the church with the word of God. But we are not authorized to take up holy war against the world. And, and, and here's the good news. is Not only are we not authorized today, but we never will be authorized to do this. 
There's not going to be a time in church history when this changes, where all of a sudden we, we say God now has authorized to do this. And, and the reason why is because we cling to the Bible. Now follow me here. This is so important to understand. If we didn't cling to the Bible, if we didn't say this was God's full and final revelation, then what's to keep any one of us from coming and saying, I was praying and God spoke to me? And I believe that we need to go on holy war. God spoke it to me. If we, if, if we didn't have the constraining word of God in our lives, what's to keep anyone from doing that? What's to keep anyone from saying that we shouldn't go do this, that God hasn't said this? We, Joshua and Israel only were authorized through direct revelation for this, but we have the full and final revelation. We have our orders. We have our commands. It is not to do holy war. And so we don't need to ever worry about whether God might call us to do this. We know he hasn't. We know he won't. And so we don't seek to apply this by having a modern-day conquest. That was a unique time in a unique place for unique reasons, which we have seen. We don't fully understand, but we trust that he is righteous, but we also know God has not called us to do this, church. We have the word, not the sword. So how do we apply this? How do we apply this? First, when you think about Joshua 6.21, think about the conquest of the promised land, I believe what we are seeing is a picture of final judgment. That is what is happening in this book. We are seeing a picture of what will happen to every single person in the world when Jesus returns. Every one of us, young, old, man, woman, will face the judgment of God for our sin. And in Joshua, where the people of God are entering into the promised land, we're getting a picture of that judgment. And what we need to tell people is not, not trying to make excuses for that, not trying to skirt around it, but we need to say, this is going to happen to every one of us someday. And it's going to be infinitely worse than what they experienced if we believe in what the Bible teaches about the doctrine of hell, the doctrine of God's wrath, then we shouldn't try to skirt around Joshua 6.21. We should take this and, and say, yes, this is exactly what happens to sinners like you and me. This is exactly what we deserve. And praise God that he has made a way to be saved, just like Rahab was saved. So we don't avoid it. We, we face it straight on. And we warn people of final judgment this morning. Be warned of final judgment. Be warned that this day is coming where every one of us will be judged for our sin. Understand that God is calling you today to repent of your sin, to turn away from rebellion against him, to live your life for his glory. He has made provision for you to be saved through his son who died for your sins and rose again. But one day Jesus, who was judged for us, is going to come back as judge. He was judged for us so we can be saved. But one day he will come back as judge. And now is the day to repent. Now is the day to follow him. This is, this is what we do with Joshua 6. We, we warn a final judgment. Not only that, we also make war on our own sin. We make war on the own sinful influences that are in our lives. Again, not with the sword, not physical warfare, but spiritual warfare against everything that would tempt us toward idolatry. This was one of God's purposes, wasn't it? For Israel was, was to make sure that they did not have influences in the land 
where they would be drawn into idolatry. We are called to be a holy people as well. As the church, we are called to be a light to the world as well. And God called Israel to devote everything that breathed to destruction so that there was nothing that would influence them that way. And that needs to be our approach toward our own sin and towards all temptation is that we need to, to, to not leave any wiggle room. Don't, don't leave anything just untouched. Don't leave any influence, but, but make war on all of it. And listen, Israel failed. I've wondered why did God want Israel to be the ones to do this? Why not just Sodom and Gomorrah style, just you, you stand out here and I will judge the land and you go in. Why did Israel need to do this? I don't know all the answers to that question, but I do know that Israel failed. And that only Jesus succeeds in this. And that we have the Spirit of Christ in us. And so that we can actually successfully, victoriously fight our sin and actually say no to sin and yes to God. We have the power of Christ in us, the power that they did not have. So we can say no to sin. We must make war on our sins so that we can be a holy witness. We need, we need to proclaim judgment and proclaim that there's a way to be saved and then we need to be a, be a light to the world as we proclaim, both our mouths speaking the gospel and our lives showing the gospel. And then finally, how do we apply this? More than anything else, I was just drawn to this more and more this week. We apply this by letting the reality of the conquest drive us to the reality of the God of the conquest and worshiping him. Why is this verse in our Bible? It's because it shows us God. And it might not show us the God that we would form in our own minds. But it shows us the God who is actually there. It shows us the real God. It shows us the God who created us. It shows us the God who is holy. And the God who is awesome. And the God who is righteous. And the God who is just. And the God who is merciful and gracious and loving. It shows us the full picture of who this God is. It reminds us that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And at the same time, it, it amazes us the, the, the fact that, that this is not what we will experience on that day of judgment because this God of judgment and holiness has made a way by his grace. He is righteous in judgment. He is righteous in grace. He is a holy God. And more than anything else this morning, church, we just need to worship him. We need to let this text drive us to worship him, to submit to him, to love him, to glorify him and to acknowledge the weighty reality of who he is, not a God we make in our own image, but the God who really is and who saves us by his Son. These are huge truths. And I know for myself that often when I'm confronted with huge truths about God, that I need to do more than just think about them. I need to sing my way through them. That's what I want to do this morning. We have a number of songs in front of us this morning. I just think we need to sing our way through the attributes of God. Let our hearts be tuned with our minds right now as we respond to who God is by declaring with our voices his holiness, exulting in his grace, hoping in his plan, and submitting ourselves to his work. I'd like us to sing together now, holy, 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 and we will pray, and then the music team will come lead us in some more songs. Let's sing this together.